Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. Hi everyone, so this is the fourth talk in the life of Joseph, and if you haven't listened so far, check out Sim and Trevor's podcasts. They talk about Joseph as a teenager and then as a slave in his his, uh, stint in the Egyptian prison. So just to set the scene, uh, the story of Joseph is set in the land of Israel and Egypt in about 1500 BC, and at that time, Britain is in the early to middle Bronze Age, where there's no record of writing, but there are monuments such as Stonehenge. So by contrast, Egypt is a military power, it has codified texts, we've got archaeological records that show there were laws in ancient Egypt. So Britain is way behind Egypt and Israel in terms of developing culture. So to set the scene, in ancient Jewish history, we've got the key figures of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob is the father of Joseph, and Abraham is his great-grandfather. And as a 17-year-old, Joseph has these two dreams. And he tells his parents and brothers about it, saying, Listen to this, I had a dream. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright, while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. And then the second dream... I had another try, another dream, and this time the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And his brothers actually hated him for it. You can understand why. And they said, do you actually intend to rule over us? So at this stage in his life, Joseph is a cocky teenager. And there's no way he could have understood the magnitude of his dreams that he would actually end up becoming prime minister of Egypt, which was the foreign power at that time. But his brothers hate him so much, they end up selling him as a slave, which results in Joseph working in Potiphar's household. He's a military commander. But despite being a slave, he rises, God blesses him, he ends up in charge of Potiphar's entire household, which is a position of significant responsibility. Joseph seems to have another bad break because Potiphar's wife fancies him, does everything she can to seduce him, and even though he acts honorably and runs from temptation, she accuses him of attempted rape and he ends up in prison. So let's face it, None of us have faced challenges like this in our lives, betrayed by our families, sold as a slave, going to a foreign country and falsely in prison. Life looks really bleak for Joseph. And quite frankly, those dreams that he had as a teenager seem just ridiculous. But once again, despite being in prison, God blesses Joseph. It says, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. So in prison, Joseph meets the two fellow prisoners, the cupbearer to the king and the baker, and he, both of them have dreams, and he interprets what these dreams mean, and what he interprets comes to pass. Two years later, and Pharaoh now has two dreams. One is that seven fat cows eat up seven scrawny cows, but they still look emaciated. And the second dream is that seven thin ears of corn swallow up seven fat ears of corn. Now, Pharaoh knows these dreams are really significant, but he's got no idea why, and he's got no idea what they mean. So he summons all the wise men in Egypt and asks them, but they can't interpret the dreams. And then the cupbearer remembers. Uh, He tells Pharaoh about Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. So next slide, please. 
The cupbearer said to Pharaoh, we told, sorry, that's great, we told him our dreams and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position and the other man was impaled, so not such a good outcome. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph and he was quickly brought before the dun- from the dungeon and when he'd shaved and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream No one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you can hear a dream, you can interpret it. So no pressure, Joseph, now. But Joseph wisely says, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And Pharaoh tells him his dreams. Now, Joseph must have been terrified before Pharaoh. He's seen what's happened to the baker. Remember, the baker didn't even commit a crime. He just offended Pharaoh. And remember, Joseph isn't an Egyptian with any legal rights. He's a slave, and worse than that, he's a Hebrew slave. And now he's got to give Pharaoh an interpretation that God has given him. And it's not a good interpretation. Let's see the next slide, please. So Joseph said, it is as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow. Then the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten because the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine following it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. To put some context to this narrative... Pharaoh was the religious and political leader in Egypt. He had two titles, Lord of the Two Lands and High Priest of Every Temple. And as the High Priest of Every Temple, he represented the gods on earth, and he was supposed to perform rituals and build them temples to one of the gods. And here's Joseph telling him that the Hebrew god has ordained a seven-year famine. This is not what you want to tell someone like Pharaoh. You want to tell him good news. You want to tell him something that would appeal to his ego, make him feel great. You know what Pharaoh does to people who offend him. Now, in recent decades, we've seen on TV uh, famines in Africa and places like that with awful pictures of emaciated children. But we have food aid. We have things that can help and prevent wide-scale death. This famine that Joseph is talking about is not like an African famine. It's not one year, two years, three years. It's seven years. There's no food aid, no United Nations, no other countries coming to assist in this famine. This famine is going to last seven years and bankrupt the country. There will be massive loss of life of humans and animals. There will be economic collapse. Let's face it. That is not the kind of news you want to give to a pharaoh. What would you do if you were Joseph? Do you think he might have been tempted to fudge it? He's been in prison for many years. He's 30 years old now, and now is his chance to become free. He must have had loads of things going through his head. Tell Pharaoh I'm innocent. I've been unjustly imprisoned. Tell him an interpretation that would be good, and maybe I can leg it once I'm out of prison. He must have thought, if I tell Pharaoh the correct interpretation, I will be executed for sure. But in the last decade, Joseph has allowed God to work in his life. As a slave and then as a prisoner, he's continued to trust in God. He's maintained his integrity in extremely difficult circumstances. And I believe he's come to the point that he trusts in God no matter what. 
no matter the fact that he has had an awful life. And he decides to tell Pharaoh the truth. And what he does is he steps out in faith. And as he steps out in faith and gives him the interpretation, God gives him a plan. Next slide, please. He said, And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are, um, that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. So after consulting with his officials, Pharaoh recognises, wise man, that God is with Joseph and decides to make him his prime minister. He's in charge of the collection, distribution and storage of the grain. And at this point, Joseph, as well as us, can see how all these years of running Potiphar's household, being in the prison and running that, have actually been preparation for running a country. And not in his wildest dreams could Joseph have ever imagined this was what God had in store for him. It's an amazing story where God has taken a self-important teenager and worked in him to, in his tragic situations, to help a country, and the result is millions are saved. So Joseph was the great-grandson of Abraham, whom God had promised, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. And this is the beginning of God's promise spreading out from just Abraham's family to the nations around him. So how does Joseph's story in 1500 BC relate to us? Well, I believe that in all his suffering... God allowed, uh, Joseph allowed God to work in him. And let's face it, we all face suffering in our own lives. When we're young, like Joseph, we hope for a grand future. You know, our dreams probably arrive, uh, involve something like marrying somebody gorgeous, having a fabulous job, getting a car, having a house. In short, we want to have it all, don't we? We don't want suffering in our lives, thank you very much. No one says, yep, I want to have a really terrible sickness. No one says, I want to go through a divorce, a bereavement, to lose a child. No one says, I want to have awful things happen to me, to be betrayed. No one wants to go through any suffering. But we have to face it. We all face suffering. And we have this choice. Do we turn to God in our suffering or do we turn into ourselves? In which case we often struggle with bitterness, resentment, loneliness, depression. So what is the point of suffering? Can it be that God allows suffering in our lives? Can it be the purpose of suffering is actually to refine us? That it gives us the opportunity to develop into the person that God wants us to be? In short, could it be that suffering is part of God's plan for our lives? That's not a plan we want. We want the good stuff. We want everything to work out nicely for us, don't we? But we know that isn't true. We know that bad stuff happens to us, sometimes truly awful things. But do we think in those times that God doesn't know what's going on? Or even worse, do we think that God doesn't really care? It seems to me that God doesn't rescue us from all difficult situations. Sometimes he does, but many times he doesn't. 
Instead, he works with us in the challenges that we face. And like Joseph, he's working behind the scenes. In many of us have injustices in our lives, and he is working behind the scenes in those too. And like Joseph, God uses suffering to liberate us from our selfish desires, from our self-importance, from, quite frankly, our obsession with ourselves. In order to fulfill these plans, God has to refine out all the selfish motivations, just like Joseph, who's basically his motivation was just to rule over his family. And the reason I believe that God allows suffering in our lives and doesn't rescue us from all our suffering is because Jesus, who the Bible says was the author or is the author and perfecter of our faith, was made perfect through suffering. Next slide, please. Hebrews 5 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And even though he was God's son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So let's consider this. Jesus is God. He's God's son yet he's made perfect through suffering? Surely that can't be right. He's God, isn't he? So he's perfect to begin with, isn't he? So how can he be made perfect through suffering? This verse doesn't mean that Jesus was disobedient and therefore he had to learn obedience because he was disobedient. It's talking about his obedience being tested. It's like when we sit an exam, we've studied up, we know the subject, but until we've sat the exam and got the mark, we can't prove that we know it. Jesus was perfect as God, but until Jesus came to earth, God had not experienced what it was like to be human. He had not suffered as a human. Jesus didn't actually want to die on the cross. That's why it says in that Hebrews 5 passage, he offered up fervent prayers to God who could save him from death. But Jesus learned what it was like to be human. He learned what it's like to face misunderstanding, betrayal, rejection, imprisonment, and ultimately death. And he learned obedience because he submitted to what God the Father asked him to do. Now, when we go through suffering, we can look at it in a number of different ways. When we look forward at difficulties that we're facing and we project forward, we can completely panic and become paralyzed. We can start thinking of all the things that could go wrong. We become very inventive thinking of every single possibility that could go wrong. We might feel confused. Why doesn't God intervene? We might feel angry with God. Why is he allowing this or angry with the people who are causing the difficulty? We can question if we did something wrong. Or is this somehow some kind of divine punishment on me? We have to honestly wrestle with these issues and ask God for wisdom. And often he gives us insight in a situation. But sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he asks us just to trust him. And the problem of pain and suffering is a really deep one. But what we need to consider today is to turn towards God in those times of suffering and not away from God and into ourselves. Because when we're suffering, God might feel a million miles away. You know, when I was a child, um, I was really upset by the, in Psalm 22 when it talks about Jesus when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the Gospels, Jesus quotes this psalm. He says on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
You know, this really upset me. I thought, why would God, at the most awful moment in Jesus' life, forsake him and abandon him? But as I grew in my faith, I realized that Jesus lived in the Father, and the Father lived in Jesus. That's in the Gospel of John. So then I realized that the Father couldn't have forsaken him. However, at that moment, Jesus felt forsaken. And I think we experience this at times too. God has said he will never forsake us. But consider this, at times of our deep pain, we may feel only despair. We may feel only be aware of our brokenness, our pain, and our loneliness. And just like Jesus, we may not be able to feel God at all. Our pain may be so overwhelming, all we can see is our pain. But that does not mean that God has abandoned us. In fact, God himself is praying for us. Next slide, please. Romans 8 says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit (laughs) intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those that love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So in our times of the distress, the Holy Spirit is praying for us deeply. He's close to the brokenhearted. And in those moments of our pain and suffering, God is closer to us than than the breath that we breathe. And those times of suffering, they change us, don't they? They are never wasted. God works behind the scenes of our lives just like he did in Joseph, with every difficulty, heartbreak, loss, pain, and injustice. And now, like uh, Joseph, we are often given moments of insight into our lives, like he had the uh, dreams that kept him strong probably through his years of prison. We, like Joseph, are often offered defining moments in our lives. Joseph had been prepared. He comes before Pharaoh. He could have blown it. He could have completely fudged it. But he didn't. He came true because of what he'd allowed God to work in him. And God will give us hope in difficult times. Maybe God has given you a verse or he's given you a dream or a prophecy that has been designed to help you through difficult times. God will not let the disasters in your life or the difficult circumstances keep you from what he has planned for you. Sometimes we can think that other people can prevent us getting from where we're supposed to be going. If that was the case, they would be controlling our destiny, not God. When unfair things happen, let's not become filled with anger, but commit it to God. God allows difficulties because they're part of his plan to get us to where we're supposed to be going. If God knew that a purpose would actually prevent you from reaching your destiny, he would not allow it. The Bible says the the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Do you think that God is phased by your difficult uh, colleague or by the difficulties you face in your marriage or by a teenager that's driving you nuts? or the fact that you can't sleep at night because you're so worried about your finances. God holds the universe together. Do you think he doesn't know how to handle your difficult situation? He knows everything about it. Like Joseph, God has amazing victories planned for us in our lives. Next slide, please. 
Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, just like Joseph, God has specific things planned for each one of us to accomplish. And when these difficult situations or people come against us, they are pawns in the hand of Almighty God. The devil might even think he's using them to hold you back. But the truth is, the truth is that God is using them to mold you, to deal with the things in you that would otherwise hinder you from reaching your goal and from progressing. You may look at those challenges and think they'll stop you from getting to where you're supposed to be going, but God is using them to propel you forward. The very things that we think are wrong in our lives are in reality the very things that develop us for what's coming ahead. When you're facing, when we're facing the worst defeats in our lives, setbacks, difficulties, people against us, we have two choices, only two. Turn to ourselves, turn within ourselves, or turn to God. You know, there's an old Cherokee proverb that says that there are two wolves within us, a good wolf and a bad wolf. The good wolf is filled with compassion, kindness, generosity, humility. The bad wolf is filled with anger, greed, malice, selfishness. Which wolf wins? The one you feed the most. You can either give up at tough times... Or choose to encourage yourself. But how do you do that when you're at rock bottom, exhausted, out of hope, out of ideas? Firstly, you stop feeding the bad wolf. You stop feeding yourself negativity. Stop telling yourself you can't overcome this. Check yourself. How do you talk to yourself? You need to turn to the Bible because that's a source of God's wisdom. And then we can encourage ourselves from reading God's word. Joseph, I believe, in his dark moments, chose not to give in to despair. He replayed in his mind the victories that God had in the past, and he realized that God, not his circumstances, had the final say in his life. That's right, not our circumstances, not our parents, our partner, our children, our boss, our illness, our finances, not even our own failings. There are so many places you can see the hand of God at work in your life. If you're a Christian, thank him for saving you today. Thank him for the miracle of life. Thank him for his faithfulness. Stir up the inner strength within you and encourage yourself. And focus on the fact that God did not bring you this far to leave you now. Remember Ephesians 2.10. God is working in you to prepare you for the works he has for you. When you're in difficulty, start reminding yourself of the goodness of God, how he is able to do anything. Almighty God uses all circumstances, good and bad, and he can bring positive things out of dire circumstances if we partner with him. That's what that verse about God giving us beauty for ashes means. God is an almighty God who is in charge of the universe and holds your life in his hands. All he requires for you to do is trust him. It's that simple. He is the God of hope. And in Romans it says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So God wants to fill us with hope 
to strengthen us, to empower us. Jeremiah 29 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. That's where God wants to lead us, into a hope and a future. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk Thank you for listening.